How's it going, everybody? Welcome to the Dead Jester Productions podcast, episode number 198. I'm your host, Josh or J. Moskers. Joined this week by special guest, Gabriel David Milan. Thank you for being here. Thank you. Happy to have you here. Why don't you tell people a little about yourself, what you have going on? Sure. Um, so yeah, as, uh, yeah, uh, my name is Gabriel, I'm 29 years old, uh, half French, half Danish, long story, um, mainly grew up in England, uh, did all my education there. Um, and, uh, yeah, I've been, uh, really obsessed since the, some of my first memories with anything creative, uh, music, we're talking dance, any way that I could express whatever I was going through, anything painful, even not just, you know, difficult things that were going on in my life, but also very joyous moments. It was, you know, I, the first thing I would think of is like express my joy through whatever, through movement, through writing, through reading books. Um, so that's kind of where I come from. And now I've just been, as the years have gone on and in the present day, I, uh, I just um, find what any any kind of outlet, any kind of creative outlet, um, and that's been really really awesome. Nice, yeah, I'm excited to have you here. We we talked very briefly here, but before the start of the show, about just wanting to have an outlet to express, you know, our ideas and things like that. What was there a specific way you got started with that, like maybe like writing or art or something like that? Um, I would think, uh, looking back at my life, I think probably some of my first memories of that was, uh, <laughs> I was at all, uh, um, when I was really young, probably around six years old, we went to Italy for, uh, at a campsite, a campground, and we spent, um, the whole summer there. And, uh, the, the leaders or the organizers of the, in the campground, they would, uh, put on like. Uh, talent shows and things like that so yeah. I'd already been dancing a lot just as a kid just like spinning around enjoying that kind of expression and my my sisters were encouraging me like why don't you go and talk to the to the people that are preparing the stage now to do it to do a dance or anything sing or whatever mm-hmm. and of course I was a bit shy but because of my personality I'm quite an extrovert by nature I I got on stage and it, I wasn't afraid or anything I did it I and I had a lot of fun but so that was like a first thing but um, as we talked about previously, before we started recording, um, my first real passion came from reading and then through reading, mm-hmm. writing poetry and, uh, uploading it online and, and connecting with other people in the kind of poetry community. Um, and I started to find like my people through that, through that, and that kind of fed getting that kind of feedback, that kind of sense of community and creative community that I would encourage any creative to try and access, um, I, I, it, it just kind of, that kind of blossomed through everything. And then I was writing short stories when I read The Hobbit for the first, first time. Mm. Um, I decided to, it was in, very inspiring for me as a young kid. I started writing like fantasy short stories and little mm. articles and yeah. And it just went from there. It just kind of snowballed from there. Nice. Did you, did you view it as like, uh, from a sense of, oh, I'd like to get this published and get this in front of people? Or was it just, I want to write this as a means of just getting it out, just enjoying the process, not necessarily looking to have it in front of other people. Yeah, that's a really good question, actually. I think it was a bit of both, but um, due to some uh, issues, some uh, some ways of how I was raised, I was very, I was raised very like strict Christian uh, background with uh, with a lot of kind of stipulation and rules, and that was not really something that I was ever taught that I could actually become a little bit entrepreneurial or try mm-hmm. and network. And even as I became a teenager, 
I was also really caught up with, with work. You know, I, uh, I don't come from money. <laughs> I don't come from any kind of wealthy background or anything like that. A lot of what I had to do is on my own. Uh, living in London is very difficult if you don't have a lot of money like I did when I lived there. So I was working, you know, different waitering jobs and stuff. And of course, every now and then I would meet people who, when they started to understand and listen to me and I could talk to them about my creative interests and my creative passions, they would always try and encourage me like, oh, why don't I, you know, I know somebody who, who could get you published or I can, you know, they could, you know, put your manuscript in front of them and, you know, who knows yeah. what come from that. But because of some of the insecurities that I developed as I got older, I would be like, yeah, yeah, maybe. And then I just would come out of my mind because I was going through times, long phases where I was creatively burnt out because I was too busy working on, you know, economical, financial troubles, mm -hmm. work troubles, accommodation troubles. And I think I'm sure a lot of people that are listening to this, I'm sure can relate to that. I'm so sure, yeah. now yeah. that I'm older and I'm in a place of more inner peace and I'm doing a lot of work on myself and, um, and taking their time to really seriously focus on my creative outlets. Now is the time where I'm really taking steps to get myself out there. And as evidenced, Exhibit A is going on a podcast like this to try and, again, boost my confidence up. Mm -hmm. Nice. Yeah, it, it's been interesting. Like I, I've always, let me rephrase this actually. I, I've always had a sense of like uh, enjoyment from collaborating with other people, part of partially probably exhibited by the podcast here that we've done for now 198 episodes. Um, <laughs> Yeah, that transcended over into artwork as well. Like I would do a lot of collaborative artwork with people when I was in school. Uh, you know, I did, I took film production classes. Did you have that same sense of uh, endearment towards things like that, where it's like collaborative efforts on a lot of things, or was it more uh, a solo point of view? Well, yeah, that's a great question. Um, so like I said before, going back to the poetry thing, that mm. was a solo thing, even though I was still sort of connecting and mingling, dipping my toe in creative communities online. I, I had yet to find people in my real life where it's a much easier, you know, this is before when I was growing up, obviously we didn't have Discord. We didn't have, I didn't have access mm. to Reddit. I didn't even know about Reddit until a lot later. Um, so it was, you know, that's, that makes it harder to really get into a proper community, um, in that way and to try and facilitate collaborations. But I do remember two key times where I started to get into the idea of like, wow, I'm, I get so much more creative input and I'm able to be inspired and learn from other creatives through collaborating. Mm -hmm. Um, and the first one was, um, well, one of the first ones was when I went to high school and I chose drama. So I was in acting class. So I was doing that every week. Um, and the practical uh, work that we had to do for our exams, we had to be, we had to each do to pass every year. We had to, we had to uh, do a monologue, choose a monologue from whatever that we wanted to do, rehearse it, and then perform it for the class and mm -hmm. the examinators. And it was being recorded um, pressure, but, you know, a lot of times creatives, we do thrive on a bit of a challenge, a bit of that kind of pressure. You kind of need that sometimes to really mm -hmm. awaken that, that, that strong side of being a creative. Um, and that was wonderful. Um, and especially the collaborating really came from doing a group performance as well. Really mm -hmm. fun. Like we were doing things from Bertolt Brecht, a really great um, writer and um, 
a whole variety of other plays and getting to learn that and also having to like during classes almost every class would start with okay everyone pair up with another person look mm -hmm. into the books that we have and the the scripts that we have available to you and work on something and the best times when we had to think of it ourselves so mm -hmm. i had a really good friend and we had to do one was really funny we actually they, they said come up with a very surreal story and ours was I was the father of my friend and I had to wake him up in the morning to go to school and I opened the door um, and he's um, he's a spider. So all of a sudden he's a spider and we had to kind of work through that and like freestyle and like, you know what yeah. I mean? Like do like a very, a very creative on the spot kind of performance. So that was quite mm -hmm. fun. And then luckily I, uh, when I moved to the town I'm in now in Denmark, I, uh, I met uh, a young guy named uh, Jeppe. Um, at the end of this, I'd also like to maybe give him a link as well because he's a really okay. talented photographer, videographer, awesome. um, singer-songwriter. He has music on Apple Music and Spotify. And seeing nice. this younger, this young guy who's quite a few years younger than me, um, we became friends, and he was the one that really got me out um, out of my shell with my music, for example, which is something I was always insecure about, thinking that I couldn't sing or I couldn't play guitar. And he, we like just encouraged each other, you know, we encouraged each other to like get out there and we would play music in the street um, in my town. And then we have a, a yearly folk festival here in my town called uh, the Tuna Folk Festival. And, um, and at the clubs and the pubs that were hosting live music, me and him went on stage in front of all these people, some people that I knew in town and, uh, and sang some songs as well. And, and through that, that was like my creative boom, you know, creative outlet mm -hmm. going on. Nice. You know, one of the, the best parts to me about collaborating with other people is it, a lot of times you'll get that inspiration that maybe you hadn't thought of where it's like a little spark where like bouncing ideas back and forth. Uh, part of it, go, you know, there's certain episodes of the podcast here where we have a guest on where it just clicks, like our sense of humor maybe is, is exactly the same. And so like, I'll say something they immediately recognize what it, you know, I'm trying to get across. They say it like a, another, you know, joke back or something, and it just bounces back and forth because we're on the ex exact perfect wavelength. The same thing can happen. Like you mentioned doing, uh, you know, basically improv on stage or anything like that, where it just sometimes it just clicks perfectly. Uh, and just having that other person that to bounce back and forth off of really helps draw out the, you know, highest level of your, creative skills i uh, i totally agree with you i yeah totally and i think as well with the friend i was telling you about the one that we played mm -hmm. live together recently um uh before that it was i didn't really have friends a lot of my friends were kind of more the party folk you know we, we mm -hmm. as young people we can get drawn into that environment and a lot of those people while they may have a lot of interest and stuff you're usually just meeting them um, for drinks, you know, and you're just meeting mm, them to have fun. And it's, it's kind of, I don't mean this in a judgmental way, but it's like more shallow. Like it's not getting to the depth of like what gives your life a purpose and fulfillment. Mm. You're there to have fun and kind of distract yourself from that kind of stuff that you're usually thinking yeah. about when you're sober. But with this guy, it was the first creative person that where one of my favorite things about collaborating that I've learned about since starting to collaborate is when you have an idea and your ideas kind of align and match up. And then you're saying at the same time, you're like, okay, now let's do it. You record something. Like we recorded a video of me dancing, um, kind of interpretive dance, kind of modern style dance. 
And while watching it back, we were just so excited. Both of us just had the exact same response to it. We were just like this like immense joy and like being so impressed with each other, with ourselves. And, uh, and that moment of like, where you're like, just like, we were just like so excited. It was like, that's amazing. I can't believe you did that. You got that shot. Like that shot was yeah. the one. I can't believe you got that close up. you know, things like that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It, it's, it's a ton of fun, especially when, uh, like, like you said, when it, it works out perfectly just because of the way you're able to go back and forth with one another that. And I know like from my, some of my experiences back when I was in school doing the film production classes where <laughs> some, some of the times it works out terribly. There's, <laughs> I don't remember why I was doing it. We, we were doing a project where we were supposed to create some, I, I, don't, I don't remember what the, the theme was supposed to be, but essentially it was, we're in the auditorium and there's supposed to be, uh, I think there's four of us and the, the three people are supposed to be getting chased by some sort of monster off screen. And I'm just the camera operator holding it like a shaky cam from a horror movie, right? And I'm just running after them, but I'm not supposed to be part of the scene. I'm just supposed to be the camera. And you can just hear, I had, we had just filmed like five or six times in a row, but I would come in the room down to the front and then wrap around and then start running after them. And I'd done that five or six times in a row and I'm out of breath. And the entire time we're watching this back, I'm just like gasping for air <laughs> and just watching it back out of the fact we're just laughing and laughing and we left it in and it was like one of those things where it you know working with them because they weren't thrilled with how the shot turned out like after the first or second or third times we just kept going like because of their feedback we ended up getting a more ridiculous shot which uh was more entertaining in the long run and so you have this like huffing and puffing where it's like, oh, is this like, is this the, the monster? Is it like a slasher, like a killer chasing after them? And it just fit right into that. And <laughs> we had a lot of stuff like that where it just ended up being better. Sometimes we were going for, you know, like a funny moment in, you know, a different project. Uh, but like stuff like that where it just, it ends up working out better uh, just because of the feedback from other people or, you know, somebody making a mistake. I mean, you see that a lot. Like people love watching blooper reels from movies. You know, they, they, what is it, the uh, Lord of the Rings movies? They have, I don't know how many hours of behind the scenes stuff where it's just the feedback people getting and it's just so much good content. I have to um, say, um, yeah, uh, when you speak about Lord of the Rings, that's one of my favorite, like, it's my favorite tri- trilogy of all time. And it's yeah. also um, some of my favorite movies, just the emotions behind it, the sense of com- camaraderie between uh, Samwise Gamgee and, uh, and uh, Frodo Baggins, of course, just mm-hmm. really lovely. I like that sense of community and that sense of like, you know, I've got you, bro. Um, yeah. But yeah, got that from behind the scenes as well. Like, they no, I know, really, but that's so going back to what you were saying yeah. about behind the scenes. I, I'm a big film buff. I'm a big cinephile, mm-hmm. and for me, I, I don't watch any behind the scenes things because for me, the oh, movie okay. itself is sacred. But I, I've seen pictures behind the scenes, which are really funny. But I mm-hmm. don't like to see that too much. For me, seeing them like out of character, but in their costumes kind of taints it just a little bit for me, but I totally get why people love it. Like to me, it, it makes perfect sense, especially if you are like a really big fan of something like Harry Potter or whatever, mm-hmm. seeing those clips where they have like really funny moments where like they're in the middle of like, I don't know, having a, a, a wand duel, you know, and then they say yeah. cut and then it's like everyone's laughing about something like 
maybe one of the actors kind of accidentally hit the camera or something like that. Mm-hmm. I get it. For me, it's just, yeah, I really, I really have like those moments, but yeah, I, I know what you yeah, mean. I can see that. I had a similar moment with uh, Game of Thrones, the, the show at least, where they, I think it was season eight, uh, they were, you know, you have a couple of the characters, one of them is, is dead and they're, you know, it's very serious, but then you see them like behind the scenes where they're just dancing and singing together and it's like clearly a very serious scene and then a very complete opposite scene off scene or yeah, off screen yeah. rather and it's it's really weird to see it's like off-putting because then when you go back and watch the show it's like but there's like singing and dancing after this yeah I, mean, exactly. I get what you're saying with them being in character and i have to say as well because yeah. like going back to what i said that i read i did three years of acting school you know i, t- and I took it very seriously and i i did a lot of research on acting i had to write long dissertations about um the acting process and then i also did film studies for three years actually four mm-hmm. um which was also one of the ways that um that i got into acting as well and the movie making business i learned all about you know close-ups and this and I had to do, for example, one of my favorite directors is uh, Stanley Kubrick, and I had to do a whole presentation on him, PowerPoint presentation with uh, choosing the certain aspect, like what what are some of his um, calling cards as uh, as an auteur of cinema, mm-hmm. um, and so uh, thing yeah, and things like that, and um, and for me, when we talk about the acting experience, and I love that you mentioned about that, like the fact that like when the cameras cut, they can start laughing and they're back in their character. One kind of acting that I really have a bit of a hard time with, and I know a lot of people really respect this style and some of these actors that utilize it, is uh, method acting. People mm-hmm. like Daniel Day-Lewis, Christian Bale in some movies, Jared Leto, mm-hmm. um, Mark Strong from uh, Succession, another really amazing TV show that I'm mm-hmm. also really into. Um, behind the scenes, um, a lot of actors have expressed the difficulty of being around a method actor because you they kind of cut the mood out. They they are like yeah. withdrawn. They are sitting in their trailer, for example, smoking cigarettes if they're playing like a chain smoker, and they're they're forcing mm-hmm. themselves to do all these things. You know, filing their teeth down to play like a serial killer or whatever. And I and really funny story that I, I I'll never forget. And one of the reasons why like this solidified my idea of why I don't really like the method acting um, skill is um, I don't remember what film it was, but Laurence Olivier, um, like a veteran of the stage, mm-hmm. um, and Dustin Hoffman were playing in a movie, and um, Dustin Hoffman was playing a certain character that was very troubled. So to get into the character, because he was fully into his method acting kind of era. Um, he, he hadn't slept for a long time. So when he came to, to the set, he was like in a really bad state. He was like half, almost half asleep and was in like this kind of disoriented state. And then, um, when they called cut at one point, Lawrence Olivier went up to him and said, my dear boy, why don't you just try acting? And I just loved that. I just love that thought of like, well, just do it. Like a really talented actor can turn it on and off and can still be really convincing in the moment, people like Meryl Streep, people like so mm-hmm. many of these who are like character actors, when they call cut, you can have a great conversation and that facilitates going back to, we talked about collaboration. Method actors, a lot of times, they're not really able to collaborate because they're doing it, they're the, they're the old one out. They're kind of yeah, stuck and secluded and in their mind. But when you're collaborating on those moments, you can have those lighthearted moments and then get back into character when the director says action. Mm. Yeah, it's... Like I said, I, I feel like you'd never hear... I'm sure there's actors that do method acting that are 
perfectly fine on set, mm-hmm. but I feel like you don't hear about it because it's not interesting. You know mm-hmm. what I mean? It's, and you always hear about like method actors who it's like, you know, Jared Leto sending, I think it was on suicide squad where he's like yes. sending dead mice to people or something. And like, it's almost harassment at a certain point. <laughs> well, that's what Viola Davis said. She was in it. I think, I don't remember which one is, so don't quote me, but I'm pretty sure he sent like a condom and like, I've heard, yeah, I've heard that. really disturbing like things. And that was just not her vibe. Like, again, she, I think she definitely came from as well, the old school of acting. Cause when, for example, in old Hollywood, people like Vivian Lee and Catherine Hepburn and Humphrey mm-hmm. Bogart, all of these like veterans, a lot of them, they cut their teeth first, walking the floorboards of theaters and mm-hmm. having to memorize whole scripts and then be on the stage multiple, multiple times. So when they got their big break in Hollywood, they had that that foundation. But then a lot of these newer actors, they came from this more modern school of thought where, again, I'm not judging them. If that's what works for them, that's fantastic. Mm-hmm. And these people are bringing in amazing performances. One of my favorite actors is I'm a little bit conflicted because one of my favorite actors is Daniel Day-Lewis. And he has been mm-hmm. like that when he was playing Lincoln, for example. So it's a, it's a different thing. But of course, we're talking about being creative and stuff and everyone has their own way to thrive in creativity. Sure. And that needs to still be respected. As long as these actors and these creatives are respecting people and not hurting people in the process i think it's fantastic yeah i actually did want to ask you uh i don't in broad strokes i don't need the specifics but just out of curiosity like what how does acting school work like how do they break that into classes like i've always been curious bring bring what into classes sorry so for like acting school like how what are they actually teaching like how to address your you know co-performers the camera like so to speak like how does that how do they, what are they actually teaching? I suppose. It's a really good question. Yeah. I could, I could definitely speak, speak to that a bit. Um, I do remember like, of course, in the pre- preliminary stages when I was first starting, I didn't really have a lot of acting experience, of course. I mean, mm-hmm. with also my Christian background, um, we did have like a, a, sh- a dance troupe and a singing troupe, um, to sing like Christmas carols on stages and we were booked on different stages in my youth. Mm -hmm. So I think that's what started me on the path of like, when I get to high school, when I get to college, I need to be doing acting. I need to take it seriously and learn about it. And in class, like, I don't know, the teachers were fantastic. Again, the teachers that I had, I had two different ones and both of these women started on the stage. So they had a, a lot of understanding of like different methods of acting. So you have Stanislavski's method, you've got different ones. I don't remember all the specific names of them, but you have different ones. So to really, really get a foundation of acting in acting class, you do a lot of that work, you research, and you're constantly taking home work, taking home work with you, research papers to read about to write essays on to be graded on. So when you get to the acting class, the next time when you're handing in your homework, a lot of my, uh, we would also discuss that we would sit there all together in like a circle and discuss what we learned, who likes the Stanislavski method? Would you use that? You know, sensory memory, recalling mm-hmm. memories of your past to help you to, to let your emotions out. So it was a lot okay. of that, a lot of like um, theory, which I, I don't know if all acting classes have this, but I'm really grateful for that. Um, and I guess, yeah, you, 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 it's just playing by ear. You know, you reading, for example, The Visit by Bertolt Brecht. Um, mm-hmm. It's a very surreal, slapstick, strange kind of um, play. And through that, we learned as well about like breaking out of the confines of your traditional style of acting, but being able to get into like very surrealist things, having to really make it look like, for example, miming, you know, opening a door, breaking the fourth wall by like pretend you're climbing over a wall. 
yeah. and uh, peering over, you know? So it was things of that nature. I see. Yeah, so I was curious because, like, as someone who has no experience with with that sort of, a, like, a school, I, I, you know, you look at it from the outside in, like, what could possibly be going on? Are they just on stage act like acting the whole time? Like I, I didn't, I wasn't even considering, you know, going back and researching and studying up on, you know, the history of it. And, you know, the, I, like you mentioned the different theories, things like that. I wonder how much of an effect that plays on, you know, younger actors and performers today. Cause you think of people that have gotten popular, you know, since they were children, you know, you have, uh, like Neil Patrick Harris, uh, you know, the, any children in, you know, like the Game of Thrones show. Drew Barrymore, Drew Barrymore. Drew Barrymore, it's a great example, yeah. And, and Macaulay Culkin, great example. Macaulay Culkin, yeah, I couldn't think of his name. Thank you, yeah. Yeah, and like what their experience is like, because, they, I mean, they weren't professionally trained, so to speak, at a young age, how they adapt to it. Wow. Uh, I mean, I never thought about that either, to be fair. I really like that you brought that up. And I, I, I wonder, I, I don't know. I've never seen any interviews, for example, with Macaulay Culkin, Amanda Bynes. Mm. She had her own show. I mean, That's these true. kids yeah. were placed on like big stages in front of crowds of people doing variety shows. I mean, Drew Barrymore was on Saturday Night Live as a child. So was Macaulay mm-hmm. Culkin. I, and in my opinion, this is just from my own humble um, perspective of it as an outsider. Mm. I don't have any affiliation with uh <laughs> Um, Hollywood or whatever. I mean, it's been a dream of mine from before, but I I really do think with these child actors, it's a lot of learning on the fly. It must be like a lot of just like having to just sit down, learn scripts. You have to put down, you have to kind of put down your, your books for school and you're in the school of acting at the same time as they're having to do homework on the side. Mm -hmm. Um, And it must be difficult, but it really breaks them open at a young age. It leads to vulnerability, which also has led to a lot of them abusing drugs and having Mm -hmm. to retire from acting like Amanda Bynes did quite a few years ago after her struggles. But I think, yeah, I don't know. It's it's a touchy subject when you speak about child actors, but I think a lot of them do. They're so they're so amazing. I mean, think we, Mm -hmm. we could list a whole we could be here all day talking about child actors and how they've developed i mean leonardo DiCaprio, for example he came from being a child actor and he's won an oscar it's like true yeah, yeah yeah i wonder how much of it is learning like you said learning on the fly but learning from like the co-stars around them the people they're working with yeah. where you know they're giving them feedback of from their experience and their whole education like acting education is just based on direct feedback as opposed to traditional you know research and practice yeah, true. I have no idea. I could. It's entirely possible that I'm completely wrong on that. But no, I, that that makes yeah. sense. Actually, that's thinking about it now. When you say it like that, I'm. I, I have read like, for example, Harry Potter has been a part of my life as a young boy. Mm-hmm. That really inspired me as well. Reading all those books religiously every time they came out, and then watching all the movies. And um, Alan Rickman, may he rest in peace, was yeah. one of the actors that really took the you know daniel radcliffe emma watson these young actors who were really fearful they had never had they've never been on a, in a big movie before and i don't think any probably of them. What, 12 at the time 13 yeah exactly you know they were kind of thrust out on that stage and mm-hmm. i i've heard other stories of like adult actors who kind of were, were getting frustrated with the with the child actors like oh why can't they just stay on their mark for example you know 
But mm -hmm. Alan Rickman was one of those ones that imparted a lot of wisdom. And they talked about that after he died, that he was there. One of the, one of the main ones that was a nurturer for them and gave them a lot of advice. Yeah. yeah it's, it's an interesting, uh, like procedure. Have you seen uh, once upon a time in Hollywood? Um, no, I, uh, <laughs> I have a bit of a, I'm, I'm not very interested in Quentin Tarantino anymore. I, I, I follow yeah, okay. a really amazing British, uh, film critic, uh, his name is Mark Kermode, really amazing. Um, and uh, he he talks a lot about how he feels like Quentin Tarantino is like a fanboy, the way that he has incorporated spaghetti westerns and different kinds mm -hmm. of old movies to bring them into the future. Because when he was a teenager, he worked at a movie store, like I think a, a VHS yeah. place or whatever. So he was obsessed with all of these films. He grew up with them. And I feel like after he made... I can't remember what it's called, but one of those, one of his earlier films, uh, Jackie Brown, that's the one. Okay. He, that was one of his first times where he was in a foray of really finding his voice and he didn't get really in, so super inspired or so, you know, taking a lot of old, old kind of genres of acting into it and, and uh, genre tropes. Um, but that film kind of bombed at the box office. And then he went right back to that kind of similar sort of thing where he was just fan fanboying out and, I don't know. For me, that just doesn't really interest me. I'm into people and auteurs of cinema who 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 are the ones that inspire people like him, who who um, who created these things. Stanley Kubrick, you know, even Steven Spielberg really set the scene for blockbusters. Um, and all of these these directors, you know, we're talking about Billy Wilder from back in the day, who made The Apartment, who made some of the most amazing life changing cinema. You know, John Huston as well. So that's kind of where I my uh thing but what sorry going back to your question why did you mention once upon a time the, the reason i brought it up is because you know it's it leonardo DiCaprio and it plays an actor who has reached the peak of his career fallen off and is trying to come back with like a you know have a resurgence and there's a part in it where it's he's on the set with uh, like a young girl who's an act a young actress who's 10 11 years old maybe and it's it, it made me think of that when we were talking about like the, the child actors where it's it's him working with her and she's giving these wonderful performances and he's struggling to get back into it. And then at the end, you know, he finds his, you know, he's finding his voice here and she's like wow. all about, you know, how he's doing it. And throughout the process of him filming the, the movie with this girl and, you know, everyone else involved, uh, you know, he has a way of handling, you know, the method that he goes about you know, getting into character and, and actually acting. And she's sitting there reading books, trying to get into her character and just different methods of which they, they go about getting into character and preparing. And it made me, wow. our discussion made me think about that. So I wasn't sure if you had, had seen her. No, I, that, well, that's interesting. I do have a lot of people who watch that film and are, are obsessed with it. And, and I mm -hmm. get that because, and I like that you mentioned that because I, I don't, that I part of it of the movie I don't know, but I know there's doesn't Brad Pitt in it play like a stuntman as well. So it shows a lot of like the behind the scenes of Hollywood in that way because he plays a stuntman. Yeah. So Brad, the grand overview of the, uh, the movie is what I said about Leonardo DiCaprio, and then Brad Pitt is the stunt guy for Leonardo DiCaprio's character, and they they have like I'll make up like twenty five years of experience together, and so they're basically best friends, and so they're everything they do they do together, and so it shows a lot of the behind the scenes of. Leonardo DiCaprio as the actor and then Brad Pitt as the stunt guy. And obviously it's paying homage to a lot of different pop culture icons, so to speak. Yeah. 
I mean, that goes back to, like I was saying, so obviously acting for me is a big one, but um, mm-hmm. music and music production is a big one for me too. And that that is also really um, relevant to, to the music industry because I've, there's a lot of musicians out there that have a hard time finding their voice, whether it's like a mm-hmm. pop star, for example, who has signs a record label signs to a record label that um micromanages her work and says like mm-hmm. for example kelly clarkson she she was a great songwriter but she, with her first couple albums she mentioned later that she wasn't able to write her own songs they were finding people to write for her mm-hmm. um and i think when you do again going back to the collaboration thing when you start to collaborate and get some more freedom with that i can't imagine sitting in the studio when like these amazing, like, you know what I mean? Like heroes of the music industry are working together and collaborating and just like, uh, you know, just freestyling, for example, just playing randomly on the drums, you know, Nirvana, for example, when they were in their infancy stages as well, having that like collaborative spirit and energy there where you're, you're feeding off someone's, someone else's energy because maybe you're a bit lost, you're a bit creatively burnt out. You get that, 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 that extra push to be like, I'm going to be more confident now. I'm going to start calling the shots. I'm going to start sitting there with the sound mixer or the producer and say like, no, can we change that part? Can we, can we bring in more of like a, a synth wave vibe, for example, you know, mm-hmm. I, I, I love that idea. And that's why I think I'm so kind of married to the creative world and really enjoy discussing creative outlets because mm. that again is another way to not just connect through creativity, but to create on a personal level. Yeah. Yeah. I feel like a lot of the issues you'll see, I mean, I feel like that happens with a lot of artists where they feel like they've been held down by their, the A&R and the record labels where it's, you know, Kelly Clarkson, uh, I mean, Taylor Swift had a very public issue with a lot of her records. And mm-hmm. I think that's still being hashed out to an extent. Maybe I don't know. I don't, unfortunately. Oh don't yeah. You're right. Stuff. You're right. Yeah. Yeah. But, yeah, so I think that's, I mean, at the end of the day, the record label wants to make money. So they say, you know, they're going to say, hey, we need songs that are going to be really radio friendly, yeah. that they're just going to keep replaying over and over and over again. And like, not to take their side, but like, I understand as a, from a business perspective of where they're coming from, they're in I, it to make money. I do. I do I'm, understand it from yeah. a business perspective. But Unfortunately, it hurts the artist's creativity. Yeah, and that's the thing. But not, not even that. I think it also kind of, they're underestimating the market they're underestimating mm-hmm. us the consumers of movies of music of all it makes it all very samey where it sounds you know I mean? views the same as well so like commodified and then they're i feel like mm-hmm. they're so afraid of losing money that they're yeah. not giving these artists a chance to like live their best life and like live out loud mm-hmm. in the in the studio or, or directors and script screenwriters being able to just have a bit of space and a bit of peace of mind knowing that they're the script that they're writing is going to be understood as much as possible by the people who are backing these movies backing these directors and Mm -hmm. when when you give people that space i mean we've seen time and time again you know if you follow the history of hollywood and especially now in the past like 10 15 years Mm -hmm. hollywood is going through some huge changes i mean you have the the strikes going on you have a lot going on and i think when i've seen so many times certain films that really break the mold like one of my favorite directors right now is Ari Aster who made mm-hmm. uh, Samar and he made uh, that new film. I think it was called, I don't remember what it's called, but there was my favorite one is hereditary. And that film, you'd think that wouldn't really 
appeal to the general market. It's not a mainstream horror film. It's not insidious. It's not one of those kind of one of the mill kind of horror films. And look how much that blew up. uh, Bo is Afraid. Is that the one you're thinking of? I'm sorry? Bo is Afraid. Is that the movie you're thinking of? Thank you. Thank you. That's the one I was thinking of. But I I love that idea of like, well, finally, A24 and some of these things are finally slowly starting to get back to that old school of Hollywood and even the music industry Mm -hmm. where you give someone a chance and they know the market. A lot of these people, they're young people, but the A&Rs, the ones that are um, backing movies, um, paying out to directors or wherever, a lot of them are older people. They don't have that they're not on the ground the way that mm-hmm. young creatives are. If you give them a chance, they know what other young people will want to listen to and watch. Yeah. Give them a chance and they'll they'll prove those people wrong. Look at uh, the success of uh, everything, everywhere, all at once. Mm. Like if you had, I imagine the pitch for that movie was ridiculous. It probably made absolutely no sense, <laughs> but it was wildly <laughs> successful because, you know, it. the through line for it is, you know, like, the family connection right and how no matter what they would always be together and so on and so forth and so like the the message at the at its core is very easily understood i suppose uh and so people got that and then in the middle obviously you have all these wacky visuals and alternate realities and so on and so forth it but it was wildly successful for what it was you know it people were happy it was something different and on the opposite side of that, you know, to an extent, I mean, I'm kind of biased. I'm not a huge fan of superhero stuff, but Neither am I. Neither am I. you see it now with a lot of the burnout regarding like Marvel movies where mm-hmm. people are saying, you know, it's all of them. A lot of them feel very copy and paste. And that's very much Disney and saying, Hey, this is, these are the markets we want to hit. We want to hit the largest possible audience. Uh, we need these sort of, you know, bullet points included in the movie. And it, it becomes very much uh, like a scientific approach to filmmaking as opposed to uh, an effort in creativity. Exactly. When you, cor- when you, when you corporize, I'm not sure of the word, when you, the corporate world has too much sway, mm-hmm. businessmen who don't have any real understanding of what it's like to be a creative, what it's like to sit with your, with your typewriter having to come up with a new film and, you know, they're going through mm-hmm. all these changes and you know a lot of script writers they get pushed out they're right they're the they're the idea person they get pushed out because it's not the direction they want they get a new person in you know they don't understand all of those things that go down from the the, the seed that needs to be planted to watch the the creativity blossom into like a great movie a great blockbuster or whatever what, what have you i think when that becomes too prevalent you, you, that's when you start to see things feeling very copy and paste. That's when you start mm-hmm. to see things that are like, for example, Disney movies. Very metric based. They're, they're losing a lot of, yeah, they're idea. losing a lot of money. Disney right now, they lost they lost a lot of money in their in their last like quarters and stuff. And so so the same thing with um, and that's another thing I don't like the another thing about the creative world that that makes me a little bit sad sometimes is um, is when these musicians and producers and directors and production companies in Hollywood or whatever, when they see that one thing starts to work, when like a movie like, I don't know, one of the Avengers movies made like so much money that they're like, okay, great. We've got it now. Now we know the formula. Let's, let's put that, apply that same formula. Exactly. Like yeah. 10 more films, same <laughs> with these musicians. They see one thing working and they're like, okay, now we know what this formula is. And that's where things become formulaic and stagnant mm-hmm. in creative spaces. And that's what creates a lot of, I think a lot of 
creatives also deal with a lot of depression. And we, we talked already about um, drug abuse from mm-hmm. child stars who end up getting older. And for example, having to try and break out of being stereotyped for certain roles, that mm-hmm. really, that, that, that's a cloistering effect and a very damaging effect for someone who like lives for acting or lives for this, you know, and you do see some success stories like Leonardo DiCaprio, you know, he started in some, some kind of films that maybe, maybe he wasn't so obsessed with and going into his, you know, as he got older, he managed to get these amazing roles because mm-hmm. he must have really fought the system and was proving time and time again that he's got star power. You put him in a movie, whatever it is, he is going to make bank. And he yeah. got a movie like The Revenant made. He was there making it. I don't think that movie would have gotten very much to maybe not at all um, exposure. And he won an Oscar for that film. Yeah. So I love That's to see that success yeah. story. But I, I really feel for a lot of creatives out there that are creatively burnt out because they're having to be formulaic. They're being forced into that box. Mm-hmm. I mean, look at even uh, Brian Cranston. Everyone viewed him as like the dad from Malcolm in the Middle. Yeah. And then he, he does like Breaking Bad. And people yeah. are like, oh, this guy is actually just a really good actor. Then they started casting him in other roles. He was in, uh, what is that movie? Contagion, I think, as well. Mm-hmm. I think that's what it was called. Uh, like a virus outbreak, whatever. They've had wow. him in like Godzilla movie. Uh, um, a number of like more serious roles. Obviously, he still does like more comedic roles and things like that as well. But yeah, watching uh, like performers come out of their shell do something wildly different is always super interesting to see it's very inspiring in my opinion it's very inspiring it gives me hope for the creative world Mm -hmm. um professional actors and singers who who find a way to kind of fight the system and we've seen that in the history of hollywood you know i'm a i'm a kind of a student and kind of in a way a scholar is another example yeah yeah oh what did you say sorry jim carrey you look i mean most people think of jim carrey as like the goofy guy the comedy guy which I mean, he's obviously most well known for for like Ace Ventura and The Mask, like yeah. things like that, like goofy ones. But I mean, he was he's been in a number of serious roles as well. I mean, even um, I would uh, say like, Adam Sandler is an even better example with Uncut Gems. Okay. You know, no one knew he yeah. had it in, that, in him, and he proved so many people wrong. Even with that uh, Paul Thomas Anderson film, Punch Drunk Love, you oh, know, yeah, that was a huge shock to like all of all of us growing up who who really loved him from movies that he was in, you know, from his Happy Madison production company and stuff, for him to do that as he got older is like, that must have been such a moment. I can't, I, I can almost put myself in his shoes when everyone was like showering him with praise and like people got really up in arms that he wasn't nominated for enough awards for Oscars, I believe he wasn't really nominated. But the fact that he did that and it became this iconic moment in his career it's just so like gratifying to see like, yes, another creative person getting that, breaking out of the mold and proving them wrong. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because I, I think it's easy f- to just kind of fall back onto the same thing over and over again and and be like, oh, yep, this is what the, you know, this person is known for. It's a, you know, guaranteed success, so to speak. And then to to really take a you know, swing and say, hey, let's try this completely different perspective out and see what can happen it doesn't seem to happen as much as one would hope mm. at times, but who knows? We'll, we'll see. I mean, I, a lack of success will force people to, to try new things. So that's always good at a certain level. I don't know. Yeah. I don't think that's always the case. I have always, seen no. a lot of creatives, you know, who it's, it's sad. I don't, I don't blame them. I don't judge them. I, I just, 
really sympathize with their situation. A lot of them are kind of locked into that typecasting thing. They think that's the only way they can do it. They have a one-track mind. And mm -hmm. I think when you speak about uh, female um, celebrities, like we're talking actresses, directors, and um, and female pop stars and stuff, for them, it's I, I think in some ways it can be more challenging because they already have that thing of like, well, for example, if they're so beautiful, um, a really good example actually is Jessica Alba. You know, she stopped mm -hmm. acting and she came out quite a few years after being in the first Fantastic Four. Um, and she said that while she was on set, the director was getting frustrated with her performance when she was crying in a very emotional scene. And he basically mm -hmm. said to her point blank, you, you need to cry more pretty. And that's a, a, a trap that a lot of these really beautiful actresses and singers get into. They cannot really express that vulnerability. They're not even, they're like, they're like caged uh, creatives. You know, she was burnt out by acting, you know, even Cameron Diaz, she's also not really on the scene anymore like she used to be because yeah. of that thing. And that's another side of being a creative, I think that needs to be addressed. And uh, I think now in society and in the media, we are seeing more of people getting these chances. You know, female directors are really standing up and showing their, their worth and showing how fantastic they can be. Yeah. My, my point was that, you know, with all these Disney as the example, you know, they're having some, what they would refer to as failures with, you know, I think the new Ant-Man bombed by their mm -hmm. standards. Yeah. You know, a number of their shows aren't doing nearly as well as they'd want. And so throughout these failures, they're going to try new things because they realize the formula is not working anymore. And so that might provide opportunities for people to be a bit more creative sure. and get out their ideas more. If they're, you know, quote unquote, desperate for. Yeah. Uh, and I think that's why as well. I think some people like, for example, the naysayers when it comes to comic book films, for example, mm -hmm. they get very frustrated thinking that they don't see the big picture. You know, they're looking at the tree and not the forest. They're not seeing that. Be patient because eventually Hollywood will get the message, you know, and it, it mm -hmm. happens in phases. Again, when you look at the history of Hollywood and even the music industry, you see um, that there's phases of this, you know, for example, the boy band era with NSYNC and Backstreet Boys and, you know, mm -hmm. these men were again seeing this formula working. These girls would become super fans and they keep trying to do it. But eventually we got, for example, even like in the 90s, and it's a different time period. But when uh, when grunge became a big thing, you know, out of mm -hmm. Seattle, we had Nirvana. That was nothing like what was being um, platformed on mainstream radio and look how big they became. They opened the door for so many other grunge artists, Hole with Courtney Love and so many others, you know, you could list a whole list of them, you know. And then again, that that phase kind of phased out and then you started to see a different thing. Rap music started to become like the the number one genre and, and sometimes rock was being pushed aside, but it goes in cycles. The world is cyclical, you know, uh, governments, politics, everything is cyclical in society. And it goes for the, it applies to the creative world as well, where you see these things, where you see um, superhero movies having that formula, but eventually you, they move on to something else and they, and they, they sort of new trend. It's, it, I think that's understandable in a way. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And like, I mean, you see it even in movie genres, you know, you look at like the fifties, 40s, 50s, 60s area, like in that sort of area. Westerns were huge. Then you started moving more towards, I mean, you, over time, you have a lot of sci-fi uh, films got really popular. Uh, like war, I mean, even earlier, I mean, you have war films were, were super big for a while. Uh, and it just goes in, in, you know, 
like you said, in waves, superheroes, obviously super popular now. Uh, I think partially, too, the technology at the time can kind of assist in driving a trend. That's so true. And a lot of directors have actually spoken out about that, that some films didn't work. Like a perfect example is um, uh, David Lynch's interpretation of uh, Dune. I mean, that film mm -hmm. bombed. It almost ruined the career of Kyle MacLachlan and mm -hmm. even David Lynch, you know, but then look what happened. The, the um, technology and special effects and all of these things became so, um, so effective and so good at being able to actually capture what these books and these movies and the, the, the ideas that these directors had mm -hmm. that now we have um, Denis Villeneuve making um, Denis Villeneuve, Dune, yeah. part one and part two. And that is one of my favorite films. Now that first one I saw it in cinema and I was just completely bowled over. I was like, wow, this is, this gives me hope that, that Hollywood is always going to eventually produce those, those like one, once in a lifetime moments, these timeless mm -hmm. classics to this day. Yeah. I know it gets a lot of flack and I don't view it as like, an amazing like a, it's not my favorite story but like the avatar films mm. are technologically very very impressive and you True. couldn't have made those you know 15 years prior yeah right and that was another case of you know the technology being available i think that's a completely proprietary uh technology as well i don't know that other people use that specific uh no, I, no I, I think you're right. I don't see it as much. It was really James Cameron, who's another, I mean, veteran like Batman. Like mm -hmm. when he made Aliens, you know, a lot of people, I think they were not looking forward to the fact that they were changing directors. But I mean, yeah. that film is, in my opinion, it's almost better than the first one. He really just mm -hmm. took control. He grabbed that story by the balls and was like, no, we're going to do it like this. We're going to come yeah. up with our own thing. He was, he's a fearless director. He, you know? it, I mean, he's always done stuff like, uh, what is the... Uh... Oh, I can't remember. The one with Bruce Willis where they're under the water. I can't remember. Um, oh, yeah. I know what you're talking about. It's the one. Oh, I don't remember the, the, the name of it, but I know what you're talking about. <laughs> yeah. I mean, that one was another one where it's like, I mean, not even crazy in some aspects, but just the way they're filming it. They're under the water all the time. You know, the the way the suits work where they're filling up. I know they've, uh, I was trying to find this real quick. The Abyss. The Abyss. That's the one thing. Yeah. They, I, I'm almost positive they took. They have Bruce Willis in the suit, like the diving suit, and they fill up his helmet with uh, some sort of purple liquid of sorts. I can't remember what it is specifically, uh, but it's supposed to be like breathable. So while he's under the water, he can breathe. But in actuality, Bruce Willis, the actor, is just holding his breath in the suit while they're filming it. But it's lit up and everything, and it's just. He's like I think suffocating. It was actually, I think it was actually Ed Harris. I don't think Bruce Willis. Oh, Ed, you're absolutely right. It's Ed Harris. I'm so sorry. Yeah, yeah. No, but yeah, it happens. We're, we're talking about so many different films right now. All these actors, yeah. sometimes they blend together. But yeah, I remember actually hearing about that. I watched a little YouTube documentary, you know, one of oh, those okay. analysis ones. And they talked about the history of James Cameron being a bit of a tyrant on set. And mm -hmm. uh, <laughs> the actors got so frustrated because they were stuck in this... Uh, in this tank for so long that at some point he was getting so frustrated that he needed to take bathroom breaks that he said, just, just relieve yourself as in just, you know, uh, uh, urine, obviously, uh, leave it, uh, relieve yourself in the tank. And that must've been again, like really, really difficult. And he's had a history of that. And that's another side of the creative, um, process that can be very challenging when you, when you're working with directors, music producers, whatever, in any avenue of creativity, and you're dealing with these kind of tyrants. But at the same time, this is not me really like 
like judging him too much because at the same time, he's still really respected by a lot of those actors because they can respect and they can recognize this man has a vision and he's got a bit of a one track mind and it Mm -hmm. can happen to us as any kind of creative. We can get in that kind of zone where we're like a horse with the blinders on and we're just like, we, we know what we want to do and we need people around us to be um, respectful and understanding that this is the vision that we're going for, whether Mm -hmm. it's, David O. Russell, who was also getting got into a fight with um, with uh, George Clooney, and actually they actually came to blows. Like it must be difficult in the moment, but when you see the finished product, you're like, well, at some point, obviously it was controversial, it was difficult to handle. But you know, again, it's it, the creative process can be so volatile sometimes. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it, it it's an interesting, you know, thing to have to go through. I mean, you have to imagine, you know, especially with the abyss you know, how much time they're spending underwater. They're just, they've got to be like exhausted from dealing with like physically exhausted mentally. It's just like, all right, we're freezing cold. We're in the water. They've just got to be in bad moods to begin with. Like the whole experience must be miserable. But then at the end of it, you get to see what you made. And it's like, all right, this is, this is impressive. Like I can. And actually in defense of James Cameron, um, he would say as well, and to this day, he does say he he doesn't expect anything from his actors that he wouldn't do himself. And a lot of times he did do those things himself. In Titanic, Mm -hmm. he was in the water with Kate Winslet and Leonardo DiCaprio. He was right down with them. He's not this like high and mighty kind of guy that maybe some people might see him as, some megalomaniac. He's Mm -hmm. on the floor doing these things. He's right there with the actors, working with them. And I guess sometimes they do need a bit of a push maybe every Mm -hmm. now and then. (laughs) It's it's yeah. a complex subject, very nuanced. It's, yeah, no, it's absolutely right. Because, like I said, I've I've seen like the back behind the scenes like documentary of the abyss, where they're talking oh. about like being in the water the whole time. Like this is so like we need a break. Oh, I'd love to see that. They they complain. I'm going to make up a number here, but they say like, oh, you know, it's we're exhausted. We're in the water for 12 hours. Oh, but for like three days a week. But then we realize, oh, James Cameron's in the water for 14 <laughs> hours a day, seven days a week. Like, who are we to complain? You know, and stuff like that. Yeah, it, it is interesting, you know, the dedication people have to their craft. I mean, look at Christian Bale, the insane body transformations he goes through in such rapid periods of time. He went from, I think it was, I forget what how exactly it went, but it was like Batman. Then he went to uh, the, the machinist back to Batman, you know, and so he got, he was big, like strong, really skinny, back to being big and bulky and strong. He did, uh, I think it was Vice. Where he's Dick Cheney, where he put yeah. on a ton of extra weight, and it's like, even American really Hustle, does. even in American Hustle, American Hustle. Yeah. yeah. But um, it, in that way again, I do. I'm not the kind of person when it comes to being. I'm not a super fan or fan girling out like a lot of people can be, and that's fine if they're into that. But because of all the research I've done by being around actors, by being around directors. Mm-hmm obviously amateur, not kind of amateur directors because it was during my education, obviously it's a different thing. But mm-hmm. through that, I think something that I find a little bit difficult to see is when these actors are doing extreme changes because I think mm-hmm. it should be more, like a lot of the a lot of the really great actors never did that. Meryl Streep never really took yeah. that, that level. I think it should be more about the internal thing. You need to put your mind in that character. But the performance as opposed that, to the... Really, you're taking a Rest. beating. You're taking a beating physically, and I think that yeah. puts more pressure on these actors. And I'm 
can't, don't quote me on this, but I remember there was an actor, and I'm pretty sure it's Christian Bale, who is who stated that he's done with that because it really did mess him up. Mm. The Machinist was a really great film, but that was a dark film for him. Like yeah. to be that skinny, same with the Joker with Joaquin Phoenix. I don't mm-hmm. even, I can't even imagine what they go through psychologically to not just be psychologically connected to this character, but physically putting themselves so fully into that world. You know, yeah. I think a lot of actors get again, create a burnout from that because that must be like unimaginable stress. You know, you're on set for a long time. Some of these productions go on for, you know, overtime because maybe they go over the budget and then they need to start, you know, making sure they've got enough money to finish the film. It must mm-hmm. be everyone, the whole collaborative situation with the editors, with everybody on set, even the handlers, the the PAs, you know, to be around that environment and to for have, you know, have people like Christian Bale dealing with that. I think it has, you have to really, and that's another thing I would like to say about being creative, and I don't think enough people talk about this, is you have to really take some downtime to really check in with yourself and stay grounded because being creative, like someone like James Cameron or anybody, you can mm-hmm. get to that point where you're, you've lost yourself in the creative process. You're kind of, you might be hurting other people around you. You're hurting yourself. Maybe you're not eating enough because you're but not sleeping enough because you're up all night writing. And I think every creative needs to take a hard look at themselves and make sure that their, their health is right. Their, their mental health is right. Yeah. I think it needs to be talked about more for sure. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, there, like I said, there's so many ways to approach it, but I know uh, like you're saying, just the physical mental tolls it can take on people uh, trying to get the best possible performance and result, no matter the, you know, uh, what, what they're doing, whether it's acting, music, like artwork, whatever. Uh, it It's a grueling effort when you're really giving it your all. Um, and then just seeing the results, like it should be based on like whether or not you're happy with it as opposed to how much you've suffered to make it. <laughs> I mean, I've, had, I, I've been like that. I mean, I'm not... <laughs> A professional creative at all like by no means really um but i've gone through phases where i was that person that was staying up all night writing i, I couldn't stop and it, there's there's a beautiful side to it and there's an amazing side to it but i think some of my favorite creators are actually in creative people writers or whatever are the ones that um they they take their breaks and they and they're they've they've checked in with themselves and they know when it's time to to kind of check out a little bit they don't let mm-hmm. it super affect them because another part about the creative process especially with writers and people who do a lot of solo isolating work i think they um i've kind of lost my my point but they i don't know they they they're they're stuck in that and again going back to mental health they need to be checking in with themselves and i've started to learn that a lot and it actually produces some really good results because a lot Mm -hmm. of creatives they think, and people who are getting started in movies, in music, they think that to be the best of the best, they have to get to this, they have to break themselves down to this super vulnerable place every time they create. But I think some of my favorite creators, the ones that prove that rule wrong by being able to be in a, in a great state of mind and still producing great things, they're still creative, creatively uh, inspired. Yeah. No, I, I absolutely agree. Some of my favorite YouTubers that I, I listen to uh, while I'm working throughout the day are the ones where they are, they're just having a good time. Like yeah. their, their content, like their, you know, their whole business, I guess you could say even started with them just having a hobby and saying, Oh, I'll just share this for the heck of it. 
and they've just continued to do that even as it's grown you know and it's it's just them having a good time and you can hear them like start to get frustrated and they're like all right well we're gonna stop uh clearly this is gone on too long we're getting a little upset it's not worth it's not worth it so we're gonna take a break and then the next time they come back they're in a much better mood and it's just so much more enjoyable because you're just listening to people have a great time and you can't help but be put in a good mood by it I'm, I'm glad that you mentioned um youtube creators because that's another big one now because that's really been platformed and then with the advent of tiktok you know you have so many of these mm-hmm. people now that can pick up a camera and they can go viral within, I don't know, a couple days even, you know, getting creative and stuff like that. And that's great. But when you talk about YouTube creators, I don't know if you know that guy, uh, Fusi, I don't know what he was, his real name is, but Fusi, he, um, he talks a lot about, about how he was creatively burned out, but he kept forcing himself. And then he had that public mental breakdown where he had that, you know what I mean? There was a pop-up somewhere in town and he was taking his shirt off and he was going absolutely mental. And it, Mm -hmm. it really kind of, a lot of people were really judging him and bullying him online and harassing him for that, making jokes. As a creative myself, my heart just went out to him. I was just like, damn, that guy needs to really take some time. And I'm really glad that he has, you know, he's a lot better now from what I heard recently. And I think, again, when these young kids are starting up on YouTube and, and becoming creators and they're getting this platform, they're becoming almost, they're like the new child stars, really, you know, and they maybe sometimes they don't have the right people around them to say like, watch out because you what you're getting into you need to be prepared for the level of scrutiny you're going to get if you blow up they need to have people around them like even a therapist for example because it's a whole different kettle of fish you know when you're when you're on youtube your life is completely splashed out everywhere you have these channels now these commentary channels that are making videos almost daily talking about, you know, this YouTuber has lost their mind, this TikTok yeah. creator, you know, Charlie D'Amelio is acting out. And it's just like really sad that they that they focus on it. But then I I just I always feel for them at the end of the day, even if I'm not a fan of their content, I just I want them to be protected and and know and check in with themselves and have that support system. Especially with how like uh, social media I'm including YouTube in this uh, just the way it works where it's just there's so many people with the constant need to you know be online so to speak of like having their videos up a lot up you know up on youtube tiktok you know instagram whatever there's that and there's this constant sense of all it takes is one big video and i could be famous i mean and- live streaming as well that must be huge pressure to be live streaming with all these thousands and maybe even tens of thousands of people watching you and there's mm-hmm. no editing yeah it it's just that and like but the allure of like instant fame so to speak mm-hmm. where it just people are sacrificing their mental well-being in an effort to yeah. just get that one viral moment yeah and i'm really glad actually um because i'm always like i said before i'm 29 i mm-hmm. when i started out my creative journey you know i was not all over the place i mean i wasn't getting a huge fan base and actually in 2009 around the same time that like a lot of YouTubers like I Justine and Shane Dawson was becoming um, very viral and YouTube was kind of in its infancy stages before it was sold off to Google. I started a YouTube channel at, in 2009. I was very inspired by people like Shane Dawson and a lot of the other YouTubers that I was watching. And, um, and I'm glad that I didn't blow up. I'm really glad when I look back that I, that I just I had some fans, of course. I had some people that were really well to like my, my comedy stylings i made a lot of different types of videos I, I back in the day we also had collabo channels like collabs where like you'd have like five different youtubers 
and then they would have their own yeah. channels and then they'd have a collab channel. That's not really a thing anymore, but I really like that sense of thing. And that's again, tying back into what we talked about with collaboration. You know, there was a lot of that kind of stuff going on. And, um, and I think now, you know, I wasn't, I didn't have TikTok. There was no TikTok back then. There was no, you know, live streaming and discord mm-hmm. or whatever. And that was a time where I think a lot of younger creatives and YouTube content creators and stuff had a bit more there was a bit more sanity in that situation mm-hmm. and now you know and then I stopped my channel you know after about a, two years it was not I kind of got again I got kind of creatively burnt out and I was very happy to just take my space away and from that you know from that platform and just focus on mental health self-care and and honing my craft before getting out there and being public I think a lot of people don't do that and I think it's very kind of sad they they throw themselves out there right there in the public the minute that they get an inspiration for something and then they wonder why things are not really working out for them because they didn't prepare themselves for that level of potential virality or or um a lot of exposure and stuff and i think it's so important again for us creatives to really hone our crafts solo and with collaborations with good friends people that you trust people that respect you and your craft and then when you get to that place of like right now it's time to channel everything that I've learned, all the research I've done, all the, the preparation I've done on myself and my creative outlet. Now I can, now I'm ready and strong enough to put myself out there and I can handle whatever comes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I feel like a lot of times a lot of people will view successful influencers to use you know the word they'll view that and be like, Oh, look at they, it's just them making a quick video or something and that's their day. Yeah. And they don't realize the whole behind the scenes business going on and everything that comes along with it. It's not just an easy walk in the park like uh, it's made out to be necessarily. Yeah. They don't realize, you know, just how much stress it is. Like, all right, I got to set this up. I got to plan all this out. I got, you know, sponsor deals I need to work on in this aspect, you know, is the editing. right? It's it's there's so much more management going into it um, than they realize. And I think a lot of people want the. Uh, benefits of having that audience and the the money that can come along with it, but they're not prepared to deal with the stress of running a functioning business, yeah. which is what's required to be, you know, a content creator, like a successful content creator rather as a profession. And I think that goes back a lot to um, one of my favorite actresses, actually, which I don't know, a lot of people might find her a little bit. I don't know, ditzy or whatever, but it's Cameron Diaz. And mm-hmm. at one point she um, did a bit of like a short interview or something. Some person was act- asking her some very personal questions about like, why did you get into acting or whatever? And she looked directly into the camera and she said, basically, if you're about, if you're going to get into this line of work and you're just doing it for the fame and for the money, it's not going to be what you think. It's not all what it's not all what it's cracked up to be the music industry. I mean, we see so many, um, examples of people like Britney Spears or whatever. I, I'm not saying that she did it for the fame and for the money. I don't think she did. But um, if you're going into that with that kind of thing, or like, especially when you're like trying to prove someone, prove to someone that you can do it, like maybe your father always underestimated you and said like, yeah. oh, you need to fall in the family business. And then you're trying to prove them wrong. You're not doing it for your own benefit. You're doing it for an external um, acceptance and validation you mm-hmm. end up feeling very disenfranchised, very like jaded and stuff. And, uh, and it should come from a place of like, no, you love what you're doing. You're, yeah. you're a content creator on YouTube because you love what you're doing. You're a podcast leader because that's what's, what's driving you. It comes from a deep place of, no, I need to get my voice out there. I need to be on those stages. I need to be in front of the camera. 
And that's mm. where you become a really kind of health, more healthier actor because it's coming from that place. And you can always center yourself, even if you're having to, you know, uh, act in a big blockbuster and you're an actor that's, you know, likes to do indie films, you can still go back to that thing of like, well, no, like I did all that stuff. I already did those indie films and I, and I will always, no matter what, you know, environment I'm working on any film, I'm going to remember and remind myself that like, I'm doing this for a reason. I'm not doing this for a paycheck, just for a paycheck. Of course they need to put food on their table for their family, but at the same time, it always goes back to them. It's a burning passion for it. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it can be it, it can be very very difficult to turn your hobby into a career without ruining the hobby for yourself. Mm. You see that like I'm you see that a lot with people who like like you said with like streaming. You see like video game streamers like how many of them get absolutely burnt out on it because they just don't want to play anything. I mean that happened to me when I was home during wow. the COVID lockdowns. We were streaming eight or nine hours a day, seven days oh. a week, and it's like this is exhausting. Mm. Cause it, it's just, it's, you don't get to enjoy it from the aspect of like, like, you know, a casual, so to speak, where it's like, all right, I want to just sit down and just do this today. It's like, nope, I got to make sure I'm, I got my A game on. Uh, I got to make sure I'm interacting with, you know, the people that I'm talking to. Uh, I, I, you're putting on a performance for nine hours, cool. essentially. It's like, mm. I, 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 you can get burnt out on it. Even like YouTube where it's not live necessarily. I mean, they have YouTube live. I get that. But like from YouTube videos perspective. And I think as well, you know, when, when these YouTuber and content creators and discord live streamers and things like that, were really starting to actually for, cause if you, I don't know if you remember, but like in the infancy stages of YouTube, for example, mm -hmm. you weren't on YouTube a lot as a young person, you could talk to your dad and ask him like, do you know Shane Dawson? And of course he doesn't, you know, yeah. mainstream people were not knowing that. And now you've got people like Charlie D'Amelio, and all of these, you know, content creators and stuff, TikTok stars, they get a lot of press even to this day. And I think a lot of people give them a bad rep. They're like, oh, they're not real actors. You know, they're not actors. They're not like doing anything super creative. They're just on there, just showing their lives. But I think mm -hmm. when you look back on it in hindsight now, I really think that when you talk about, for example, with you, with the live streaming, I'm not trying to compare with uh, with actors, but they they have times where they can go home and shut everything down. They don't need to be on Twitter because they don't need to to promote themselves. They have got yeah. promotion going on. They do their press junkets and things like that. And I think a lot of times content creators now, I think they deserve a lot more uh, respect because mm -hmm. it is full on when you're live streaming like that, and you're, that that's your that's your way of making money. You're earning a living through really putting yourself out there. And I think a lot of people give them a bad rep, but they they deserve a lot of respect that's that's a huge responsibility you have fans that are like you know telling you maybe maybe for like oh you your videos have saved me like you 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 know my depression has gotten better because i'm watching you every single day watching you uh grow up and you know get married and have this life and it's inspiring to watch they deserve that respect they really do they're a part of the creative scene they're a, they're a part of you know of hollywood of the music industry and they have they have their place and they deserve to have their place there mm -hmm. Yeah, it, I mean, a huge part of their job is to only show the best side of themselves, right? Not showing that they're upset or whatever. It's it's only showing, hey, this is the best possible version of myself in my life that I can possibly put on camera for you. And they're doing that constantly, you know, and it can be exhausting. And like I said, like going back to like the YouTube side of things too, you know, it, it's, it goes from being a hobby, something you enjoy to how do I manage this in order to keep it as my full-time job, right? Mm 
exactly. Yeah. And it, it starts, it, you, your perspective changes to managing it and growing it uh, as a business, as opposed to just having it there to, to do it for fun. But, you know, it, I, I think it's a thing that gets overlooked when people are just starting out. Um, and then you have some people who, when they start out, they're not doing it from a creative point of view. They're like, how do I get, I, this is a thing I notice a lot because it's literally what I do for a living is working with smaller, you know, content creators and, and businesses where it's like, how do I just get a big YouTube following and like a social media following? Like, how do I get these? And it's like, all right, but why do you want these? Right. It's like, what, what's the, what's your reasoning for it? Cause if you're just coming at it from the perspective of, I want attention in order to make money it becomes very obvious, right? Like if, if I go to someone's YouTube channel and the entire video is, Oh, Hey, how's it going everybody? You know, like this is my new product. Here's how you can buy it. See you later. It's like, nobody wants to watch that. Nobody wants to buy your product. They can see right through you. You know, it's, it's, it should be organic as opposed to completely business minded, uh, to an extent. I understand the need for, uh, you know, like advertising placements and things like that, but, it it's uh the mindset has become very different ever since you know youtube has become very commercialized and just social media in general has become very business minded so true where it was originally and it wasn't like that's going back to my very brief um youtube career you know i was back in the in the early days and yeah. it was so fun like for example i mentioned like i justine and a lot of these collab channels and mm-hmm. Um, they're not all coming to my to my mind now because a lot of them have um, have stopped. You know, they've they retired from YouTube and they're now like you know fathers and mothers and you know all of that stuff. But I really liked the environment back then because William Johnson. I was trying to get his name. We didn't have any of these channels that were critiquing YouTubers mm-hmm. as much. You know, you had VidCon and everyone was just so happy to be there and to see their favorite. Um, YouTubers and there wasn't they weren't putting their life so much out there it was like sketch comedy it was very simple kind of fun mm-hmm. really fun lively positive stuff and and I and I do feel for YouTubers that are starting out now as young creative 17 18 19 year olds years old because they're exposing themselves and risking a lot by doing what they're doing because they will get those people that are going to critique them for little things they do. Like they say one wrong word or they, you know what I mean? They mm-hmm. say something that's maybe in the moment, something funny on like a, after like three hours of live streaming. And then they just, they're in that moment where they're just kind of hyped up or kind of having fun and they say one wrong thing and they can get canceled. Um, yeah. I think there's like, a certain naivety towards the permanence mm-hmm. of mm-hmm. the internet as well. Like they're putting these videos out there of themselves and sometimes, you know, not at their best, not like, especially like streamers, you know, and then all of a sudden it's like, oh, this is a viral moment. It will never disappear ever. Right. Same thing with, you know, the popularity of, you know, uh, like only fans and like sexual content. It, it got huge because people saw it as a potential way to make easy money, so to speak. And I think there's going to be a lot of people not to down, not to like put people down that do it or anything, but like I think there's gonna be people later on in life that realize, oh, I wish I hadn't done that. Well, actually, actually, it's it's happening already. I have read some articles and some women that have spoken out now and said, actually, OnlyFans is technically a scam because they think that, for example, if they don't have a a, a pre-established um, 
you know, uh, virality or they don't have like, a fan base already on Twitter or wherever and they're going on OnlyFans and they're making this content, a lot of them are actually not making the kind of money that you think. You know, they're like, oh, I'm in the top 0.5% of like the top creators or like I'm making that kind of money. And a lot of times there's um, they're not making that kind of money. And one woman kind yeah. of made a joke about it saying like, I realized by looking at all my finances and budgeting that actually I could make more money working at McDonald's than on OnlyFans. You know what I mean? That's yeah. what I mean. people need to really go in to creative spaces or content creator spaces with their eyes open, with doing a lot of research. You know, Reddit is a great place. I'm really I use Reddit daily to be a part of these communities of people, for example, podcast subreddits and 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 learning from that, researching this kind of stuff, seeing what these people are talking about. And and really young creators that are getting to these spaces, they really need to look up and listen to and try and get advice and listen to the wisdom that is being imparted by veterans of these of these mm-hmm. creative spaces and content creator spaces to really see. And that goes back to what we're talking about with child actors learning on set from other actors, you know, not thinking they can just do it all on their own, but really listen to who's been in the movie business for 30 plus years where they're just starting out on their first film, you know, really listening, mm-hmm. and digesting food for thought to, to actually facilitate more growth and more healthy responses to being in creative spaces. Yeah. Yeah. And going back to finish my point too, like it, it's about go- approaching it from an aspect of it. You can't just look at it from the best possible angle, right? You can't yeah. just look at it and be like, Oh, you know, if, if everything goes well, this is what'll happen, and then ignore the negatives, right? Mm. And it, like going back to what I was saying about OnlyFans, too, like a lot of people get into it, they don't think about the permanence of like having this stuff available online, but then also the percentage of these people that start these accounts make almost no money, and then realize like, okay, well, I regret doing this, you know, I haven't made any money, and I've really put myself out there, you know, and it, and it's not just that, it's YouTube, everything, like Twitch. Instagram, Facebook, TikTok, whatever, you know, you're, you're really putting yourself out in front of all these people. Yeah. And you're just at the whim of the internet, so to speak. And, uh, but that's again, know. where, where you, where you think, where you think about some of these YouTubers and these TikTok creators where they're not doing it for the right reasons. They're looking to get out their 15 minutes of fame. And that's why not to judge them at all, but that's, I'm just grateful that for me, my gravitation is toward making long lasting art that I can be proud of. Like I, I've put mm-hmm. myself out there, for example, now I'm working on an EP on SoundCloud and it's my first foray into using, uh, you know, uh, FL studio and Ableton and things of, you know, things like that. Mm-hmm. I'm learning on the fly, but when I put something out, I'm not going to ever look back and think that was, you know, I'm going to regret that because people will know and I know intrinsically that I was in my infancy stages and it's very maybe kind of primitive but I'm, I'll look forward to revisiting those those first forays into music production and uh, and harness that and learn from that and get even better so I think when it comes to this stuff you know if you're coming into it with 15 minutes of fame kind of energy and I'm not you know I, I started just as an amateur and started to learn to accept that and be like well, it will come. It will. Everyone has their own journey when it comes to being creative, and not just creative, but in the education system, in you know, an, an accountant, for example. You can't compare yourself. A lot of people compare themselves and get very envious and jealous of of people who are so successful. But like, we all have our time. You can be eighteen, be at the top of your game on YouTube, or you can be making videos consistently for like three, four years, mm-hmm. and um, 
And by doing that, you eventually you get to that place. We all have to be patient with ourselves as well. And and like I said before about self-care, it's so important to to remember that, that, you know, you are on your own journey. You're take your time, mm-hmm. be patient. Sure. It's going to come. Yeah. Well, before we wrap here, is there any final parting advice you'd give people who are looking to get started on a creative journey in any aspect? Yeah. Um, I've touched on some points, but I can kind of, I'll, I'll just kind of state them now. A couple of the ones that are already in my mind and things we've already discussed and things that you've also brought up. Um, I would say, first of all, really hone your craft, um, really look actively and, and work hard on trying to find good, stable, supportive, you know, people you can collaborate with. And you're going to come to a point where you're going to find some people who are collaborators that are not going to be good. They're not going to facilitate your growth or inspiration. So make sure that you are aware of that and, and, and uh, filter through the ones that maybe are not going to be the right people for you. But eventually you will find someone, you know, we all have you know, a lot of, um, a lot of commonalities when you're creative, you will eventually find people like that. So really take your time. And I would say, be patient, really check in with yourself and enjoy the process. Like you were saying before about the YouTubers that you like, the ones that are really enjoying the moment and really appreciating it. And, Mm -hmm. you know, just really hone your craft is what I would say, work hard on it, be motivated and allow yourself even more importantly, in some ways, allow yourself to go through the slumps because even the greatest writers of our time went through writer's block. Directors yeah. have gone through years of not making movies. You know, some of my favorite directors, I'm still waiting for their next movie. They made one like, you know, back in the 90s, for example. Mm-hmm. Take your time. Don't force yourself. If it's if you start to feel like it's it's hurting you psychologically, take that time. Really take that time to really check in with yourself. And then you'll come back to your creative platform and you'll be ready to you know so that's the best advice i would give awesome thank you so much yeah where where can people go to check out all of your work um so on uh instagram would be probably the best place i've got a private instagram not private but like i don't really put too much creative stuff on there um that's sort of more like my modeling work and stuff Mm -hmm. um uh but you can find me at Turelks spelled T-U-R-E-L-X underscore creations. And I put my sketches on there, my paintings. Um, I write a lot of poetry, um, like memes, you know, like pictures with like my mm-hmm. poetry and stuff, classic art, home decor, just, just so you can watch my, you know, be on the journey with me to see like the, the improvements. So that's, that's where I would say. And just recently it's in the infancy stages right now. So um it's it's not really started fully but if you just give me a minute i will find find it uh it's um it's my new youtube channel um which is transcending trauma and i'm starting to make first i'm starting to make uh guided meditations which really helps me and there's a whole community on youtube of people that are doing guided meditations so i'm a big proponent of meditation transcendental meditation for relieving yourself of trauma and and getting to a state of inner peace that's like my mission statement if you will and eventually i'm going to also kickstart my own podcast i've gotten slowly gotten into the hang of this is my fourth podcast that i'm doing and uh and it's really been so inspiring talking to you for example i was just like bowled over by the thoughtful questions that you have and the experience that you have with so many podcast episodes in your back pocket already um so my podcast is going to be called transcending trauma and i will eventually start to as i'm 
gaining confidence with it, I'm going to start quite slowly. And eventually I will start looking for guests. So contact me if you want to. It's, it's all, it's all happening. <laughs> nice. Awesome. Thank you so much for coming on. Man. I really appreciate it. I had a great time chatting. This is really Thank fun. You. Great eye opening. I, I appreciate all the insights you had from the different sure. perspectives on the different uh, performing arts. Yeah. And uh, thank you everyone for listening. Go check out deadjusterproductions.live. Got links to all of our stuff on there. It's our website. Uh, if you're ever interested, if anyone is ever interested in being a guest, we have a form on there you can submit. It comes directly to me. It's the easiest way to get in touch with me probably. Uh, and uh, yeah, we've got a lot of information on there about just getting started on content creation. We're always going to be expanding that. I've been working on that a lot lately. So go check it out. Thank you everyone for listening. Thank you, man, for being on the show. Gabriel. I really yeah. appreciate it. Having me, I really appreciate it too. Thank, thank you. Thank you. Thank you everyone for listening. We'll see you next time.